Hello, and welcome to the First Baptist Hanford podcast. Our primary mission at FBH is to love God, love people, and serve the world. We hope that this weekly podcast will encourage you in your daily walk with Christ as we play for you our most recent sermon audio. Let's have a listen. You are new with us here. My name is Peter Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at FBH, and we're just excited to uh, to have you along. And uh, we're continuing in our series through the Gospel of John. Um, and as you may have learned last week, as we went through the entire prologue, verses one through eighteen, man, the book of John is just dense. When you look at the book of John and you read through it and you start pulling apart the theology, the claims that John is making, all of these different things. It can be overwhelming at times, especially if you're only hearing it for the first time on a Sunday morning. And so what I would encourage you to do as we're walking through this series, and we're going to kind of slowly walk through this series, read along with us. Go through, read, go back and read, go forward and read, whatever it is that you want to do. But the more exposure you have to the content, obviously, it's going to be a whole lot more uh, accessible to each of you. Um, just as we start off, uh, informal poll here, I would love it if you would just raise your hand, if you would consider yourself an artist, anybody in here who would consider themselves an artist. Okay, good, good. Okay. You can put your hands down. We get it. You're artistic. All right, whatever. Um, you guys have absolutely nothing in common with me. I just want you guys all to be aware of that. Uh, my kids do a thing uh, on, it's a, it's a YouTube channel. It's called Art for Kids Hub and Art for Kids Hub is Essentially, you, uh, there's a dad and his son on this YouTube channel, and they go through and they say, "Hey, we're gonna today. We're gonna draw a car." And they're like, "Are you excited?" And you know, "Yeah, whatever." Irrational hype, right? All that stuff. Um, and so then they go along and they draw the car, kind of line by line, piece by piece, and that sort of thing. And you can follow along with it. And so I've gotten the opportunity to do this with my kids a couple of times. And man, I think I do so good, right? I'm cruising through. I'm like, man, my lines are so good. And I get to the end and I show my sons and they show me theirs. And then I crumple mine up and throw it in the trash, right? I'm like, you guys did so much better than me. I'm not an artist at all. And hopefully for the rest of you, you can, uh, those who didn't raise their hands who were like, hmm, I'm an artist, right? The rest of you can can relate to me uh, a little bit there. But, But art projects aside, the capital C church, the church, all of Christendom is, is one of the most talented places in the entire world. Actually, if we, uh, if we look back, the, the, the church has people who have incredible talents that have been on display really since the beginning of the church, the, the, the church that was set up in Acts. Actually, the church has been credited as being one of the, the, the centers of innovation, for an incredibly long time. You think about things like art, music, architecture, science, mathematics, and the church has been at the forefront of these things for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can actually look back uh, to the Renaissance that was going on back in Europe in the 1500s. So put on your world history, European history thinking caps. For some of us, it's been longer than others. But think back to European history in some way. And it goes hand in hand. The, the, uh, the Renaissance really goes hand in hand with what we call the Reformation. 
Now, the Reformation happened in the 16th century. It was a, a movement really in Western Europe that aimed at reforming the doctrines and the practices of the, of the Roman Catholic Church and re resulted in the establishment of Protestant churches. Right? For those of you who have been uh, a part of Christianity for a while or those of you who are more history buffs and that sort of thing, you'll, you'll recognize the importance of the Reformation uh, in Protestant churches. And so in, in 1517, in the Reformation, Martin Luther published his 95 Theses, which criticized the some of the practices of, of the Roman Catholic Church at the time. And that really was the spark that kind of split the Roman Catholic Church from the Protestant Church. That was the very kind of beginning of it. Now, but the Renaissance, though, is happening at the same time. And the Renaissance is really just a, a, a fancy word that means rebirth. And it was the rebirth of classical thought, wisdom, art, poetry, architecture, science. It was the rebirth of all of those things. Culture had kind of stagnated. It was just like, you know what, we're okay with where we're at. And a lot of that had to do with the Catholic, the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church being the governing power at the time. Because Constantine, we're going way back now, Constantine, he set up the Roman Catholic Church as the church of the land. And so because of that, man, the church had power over a whole lot of things. When the Renaissance started happening, this free thinking started happening, people deciding that they're going to gather wisdom on their own and gather, you know, just, just do their best to push culture forward in the Renaissance, all of a sudden the Reformation came up because people started questioning the Roman Catholic Church. But inside the church at the time, during the Renaissance, uh, which led to the, Re the, the Reformation, there were people like uh, Nicholas Copernicus, more, more commonly known just as Copernicus, right? And some of you history buffs out there elbowing your spouse, you're like, I know who that guy is, right? I, I, I get my gold star for that. But Copernicus was actually asked by the Pope to create a more accurate calendar, and in doing so, he came to discover that the sun is actually the center of the solar system, not the earth, which is fascinating because all of a sudden people's theology at the time, people's understanding of the world at the time, even their understanding of God at the time, they began to question those things. Because in this instance, people, people thought for a really long time, hey, the center of the world, the center of the entire universe is us. And that's how much God loved us, that he would put the earth right at the center. And all of a sudden that thinking shifted. That thinking shifted towards it's not about us. God doesn't just care about this world, but God cares about us even though we are, we are just this little speck, this little planet in this massive universe. So people's faith was challenged by, uh, by Copernicus. There were guys like Michelangelo, guys like Botticelli, Da Vinci. They were creating works of art that are still just as breathtaking today as the day that they painted them. The printing press, developed by Gutenberg, the grandfather of the modern printing presses, and allowed Bibles to be more readily available. Other guys, uh, uh, alongside Copernicus, guys like Kepler, Newton, Galileo, you guys are familiar with some of these names, each agreed that the idea of the book of nature, nature as we see it, was written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. So these are people that we all think, man, they're scientists. They did incredible things for, for the scientific world. But all of these people pointed directly back to God with these findings. 
And this is only one time period. Granted, it's probably the, the, the biggest time period for these things. That's, that's why it's called the Renaissance. But this is only one time period. It should be no surprise that to, to anyone who has a relationship with Jesus and is, is sealed by the Holy Spirit, that we have greater gifts and talents inside the church than people do outside the church. The church has greater gifts and talents inside the church than those, to, than those who are outside the church. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us this, starting in verse 7. It's not on the screen. It says, Now to each one, each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. So, the church has been supernaturally enabled by the Holy Spirit, meaning we all have a job, we all have a responsibility, we all have a part to play in this massive adventure we are on in following Christ every single day. We all have a responsibility in that. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, if we're not using those gifts to help build up the church the way that they are intended, if we're not taking the responsibility and playing our part in the building up of the church and the growing and the deepening of the kingdom of God, what are we doing with them then? Today, while, while we continue through John 1, we get to take a look at one of my favorite Bible characters, a guy by the name of John the Baptist. And as we, as we get into the text, you can, you can flip there in the Bible so you're ready to go, or in John 1, uh, starting in verse 19. But the majority of our text today is gonna be, gonna be there. But before we do that, we need to back up just a little bit. We need to back up just a little bit. And the first thing that we need to recognize is that John the Baptist was set apart with intention. He was set apart with intention for his life even before birth. He was set apart with intention for his life even before birth. When we think of John the Baptist, a lot of times we think of a madman. This is kind of why I like him, right? Disheveled hair, camel belt, like eating locusts, like doing the whole thing. And I'm like, man, that guy is awesome. That guy is so cool. Like if there was street cred ratings in the Bible, like John the Baptist would probably be up there pretty high. So a lot of times that's the way we think about him, but we need to remember back to the birth story of Christ, and even before Jesus was born, we have John the Baptist's parents who actually pledged, they, they pledged his life to God, to the work of God. Luke 1.15 tells us the commitment that was made on his behalf before he could even talk. Luke 1.15, it says this, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. This is a vow that is known as the Nazarite vow. 
Now, this vow is something that normally would have been saved for individuals for a specific period of time. It wasn't normally spoken over babies from their parents. It was somebody who on their own accord would say, I want to commit this piece of my life. I want to commit my life specifically to God for this set period of time. It wasn't normally done in the way that we see it done in the book of Luke. Now, we, we do baby dedications, child dedications. We usually do them on Mother's Day. You guys remember that? We lined up all the babies in the church and all ood and odd, and they're so cute and all those different things, right? And, and more importantly than how cute the babies were was we had mom and dad up here with them. And as mom and dad were up here with them, Jeff did a, probably an incredibly inspiring reading, did a great job, I'm sure, because it's Jeff Milhon. And we asked them, hey, we want you to commit your life, commit raising your children to coming to understand who God is, to coming to have a saving relationship with Christ. We want you to do your best to raise these kids in the way that they should go. So when it is time for them to leave the house, when it is time for them to move away for work, for college, uh, to just simply get out of your roof, some of you are still waiting 30 something years later, but when they go, that they are ready to go. And as they go, they will be able to confess the name of Christ to be able to deepen and widen the kingdom of God. That's our hope. And so as we had these kids up here, that was our hope in the same way here that John the Baptist's parents say, look, I want, I'm going to pledge this child to God. But John the Baptist's parents, this vow was more than what we ask of our parents. It was more than, than hey, we simply want to raise your child in a Christian home so they can understand who God is. It was a much deeper vow than that. We hear more about this truth as we go kind of back to last weekend in verses six through eight. We kind of glazed over him last weekend, but we need to go back and recognize who John was. So John 1, 6 to 8, it says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. This is John the Baptist we're talking about. This is not the author of the gospel of John. Verse seven, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. The light we're talking about here is Christ. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So here's the deal. Here's the thing that we need to understand is that regardless of what God had for, for John, regardless of what his parents had for his life, at some point, John the Baptist had to have committed his life to being God's servant. At some point, he had to take initiative on his own. And my guess is, is that his parents did their best to raise him up in the way they should go. They probably said a whole lot of things like, why can't you be more like your cousin Jesus, John? Right? That's pretty rough. But they did their best to raise him up in the way that he should go. But at some point, he personally had to commit to being a servant of God. Think back to when you decided to follow Christ. For those of you in here who would call yourself a follower of Christ, think back to that time. Whether you prayed that prayer, you got convicted, or you started just simply, you woke up in the morning and was like, you know what? I'm going to follow God. I'm going to open my Bible. I'm going to do my best to pursue him every day. Think back to whenever that was for you. For me personally, I was eight years old. I was in the bottom bunk of mine and, brother, mine and my brother's bunk beds. 
And uh, my mom came in and she talked about, what'd you learn at church today? And I talked about, hey, mom, I want to invite Jesus to be in my heart. And so we did it and we prayed. And then like a good Baptist, a couple weeks later, I got dunked um, and decided that, yeah, for that point forward, I considered myself a follower of Christ. That being said, it wasn't until I was about 15, 16 years old that I began to take initiative in my own life. And I decided that this thing called Christianity, this person, this God named Jesus, that is somebody that I'm going to commit my entire life to living for. So now think about you, especially if you came to faith when you were young, that you don't know anything but church. You don't know anything but waking up on Sunday, making your way over here, and then leaving afterwards. If that's you in here, my guess is, my assumption is, is that at some point you had to decide on your own that this was something worth pursuing, that you had to take up the mantle of Christ on your own. At some point, it stopped being a faith that your parents lived for you and began to be a faith that you lived on your own. And that's the same thing that, that had to have happened at some point for John the Baptist. Now, the vow that we were talking about a few minutes ago, okay, like I said, this isn't a vow that, that people usually spoke over their babies or anything like that. This is a vow that oftentimes had a, a set start point and a set end point. But the vow is found in Numbers chapter 6, and we're going to read through it real quickly. Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, it said, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites. And say to them, if a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine. They remain under the Nazarite, oh, made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. That'd be tough for our friends over in Selma. As long as they remain under the Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. During the entire period of the Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair grow long. Throughout the period of their dedication to the Lord, the Nazarite must, go near, must, must not go near a dead body. Even if their own father or mother or brother or sister dies, they must not make themselves ceremonially unclean on account of them because the symbol of their dedication to God is on their head. Throughout the period of their dedication, they are consecrated to the Lord. So the Nazarite vow, like I said, is taken by individuals who have voluntarily dedicated themselves to God. The vow is a decision, an action. It's a desire on the part of people whose desire is to yield themselves to God completely. By definition, the Hebrew word Nazir, it's where Nazarite comes from, simply means to be separated or be consecrated in some way. The Nazarite vow has, has, has five features. It's voluntary, like I said, so it can be done by either men or women as well, as you heard from the beginning. It has a specific time frame. It has specific requirements and restrictions, and at its conclusion, a sacrifice is offered. So the individual enters into the vow voluntarily. The Bible says, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if a man or a woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of separation of the Lord as a Nazarite, this shows that the individuals who take the initiative to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart to the Lord, there is no divine command involved. 
This isn't something where God speaks directly to them, and as he speaks directly to them, they say, okay, God, I will take the Nazarite vow. That's not how it works. People decide on their own initiative that they are going to do exactly what it is that God wants them to do. They are going to consecrate themselves to God. They are going to be set apart for the name of God. Also, both men and women can participate. It, it lets us know that the Nazarite vow was often taken uh, purely for personal reasons, such as thanksgiving, a time of being thankful for a blessing that God had given people in their lives. Maybe it's a recovery from an illness or the birth of a child, being excited and being thankful to God. Also, like I said, the vow had a, a very specific time frame a beginning and an end. So when we see John, this preached over John, this truth being told over John the Baptist, even before he was born, it carried through all the way till the end of his life as far as we know. And so if you want to talk about a, a set time, maybe that set time was from the time he was born all the way until the time that he died. But this was abnormal for this type of vow. They were given specific guidelines and restrictions. We talked about the grapes. We talked about the raisins. They weren't allowed to cut their hair. They weren't allowed to go near a dead body because that would make them unclean. I mean, this was a real vow that they were taking. All of this points, all of these points, all of these things point to the difficulty and the difficult life that John was living on God's behalf. All of them point to John's complete and total dedication to the Lord. Because of all of this, we can recognize that John the Baptist refused to get in the way of what Jesus was doing. John the Baptist refused to get away, or, uh, refused to get in the way of what Jesus was doing. And there's, there's more evidence for this as we get into verse 19. It says, now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confess freely. I am not the Messiah. Verse 21, they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had, who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? He says, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John in these passages has no desire to bring himself glory. None. No desire to bring himself glory. He has no desire to build a kingdom on his own. He has no desire to be the guy. All he wants to do is do the job that was required of him and point people to Jesus over and over and over again. This is what we see John the Baptist doing. 
is saying, look, it's not about me. It's not about me. Regardless of my gifts, regardless of my talents, regardless of the things that I do in my life, the things that, I, that, that God has set me apart to do in my life, the intention that God has for my life, regardless of all of those things, it is about Jesus. It's not about me. He keeps going back to that over and over and over again. And because of that, John points people directly to Jesus. He points people to him over and over again. It tells us about that in last week's text in verse 15, John 1, 15. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. And we talked about the time frame a little bit and how can someone who was born after John actually be before John. And so if you didn't catch last week's message about Jesus being there in the midst of creation, go back and catch it online on our, on our podcast. Search FBH in the Apple store and you can find it. But that's what he completely and totally keeps going back to. It's not about me, it's about Jesus. But it wasn't, that, it wasn't just that he testified concerning him. If we keep pressing into 29, it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 34, I've seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. See, it wasn't just that John's parents had promised him to God. It wasn't just that he had decided at some point in his life to be dedicated to God. It was that when it came down to it, when people were leaving him to follow Jesus, he got completely and totally out of the way. In verse 36, he pulls no punches. He simply says, look, the Lamb of God. If you continue reading the rest of that chapter, that's the last thing we see John say. He says, look, the Lamb of God. And immediately after that, his disciples just leave him. They follow him. They follow Jesus. And they're like, John who? See ya. That's who he pointed us to. The people who had been doing ministry with John, John's disciples. John said, look, it's him. And they just let, if that's me, if that's us and all of the things that we try to accomplish, all of our own little kingdoms that we try to build up, all of the things that we think are the most important, I'm going to make this the best and I'm going to do this. It's about us and it's about us and it's about us, man. We scrape and we claw to hold on to every single person we can every single time because we think it's about us. It's about the people who are following me. And it's about my kingdom and what I can build. And John is completely and totally contrary to that. It's not, it's not about me. 
It's not about what I did or what I've done. I know it's been a cool ride, guys. I appreciate you guys following me. I appreciate you guys being my disciples. I appreciate all those things. But regardless of that, man, that's where you should go. I'm willing to let my ministry die. I'm willing to let the works that, that, that I have been doing fade away so I can see something way greater happen. Something that I can't do on my own. Because no longer am I going to go baptizing in water. Instead, you're going to follow that guy and he's going to baptize in the spirit. That is the lamb of God. Go. And how often do we just grasp onto those things? Our own kingdoms, our own initiatives, our own things. And think, man, if I could just do one more thing, if I could just work a little bit harder, if I could just pull a couple more people in, if I could get more people to just, just buy into the things that I'm doing, man, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be set. Then I can move forward. Then my kingdom will begin to flourish. Man, if we were John, if I was John, I think I might be in trouble. I don't know about you, but if it came down to it and I said, if it came down to it and it was up to me and say, hey, you guys need to go follow that guy instead of following me, I'm going to fall by the wayside. That'd be a real hard conversation for a lot of us in this room. Because so often our mentality is about me. What can I do? What is my kingdom? How am I building up myself? How am I building up my family? How am I building up my friends, my business, my home, my possessions? Fill in the blank with whatever it is that fits for where you're sitting this morning. Obviously, through looking at all this text, we have to pull, continue to pull some application into our own lives. Here's the deal. Your life, my life, much like John's life, was set apart with intention before we even came out of our mama's womb. Every single one of us were set apart with intention. Even, he was, even when he was inside my, his mom's womb, God knew that he was going to do things on his behalf, on God's behalf. He was going to be the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. But at some point, he decided he was going to use his life to point people to Jesus that it wasn't going to be about him. That vow, that truth that his parents spoke over him when he was born, he picked up that vow on his own some, at some point. And he decided that it wasn't going to be about him. It was going to be about the Lamb of God. So the question then I have for all of us this morning is this, do you believe that God has set you apart with intention? Do you believe that God has set you apart with intention? I think one of the problems with Christianity today is that we don't truly believe the promises that God has for each and every one of us. And part of it is the culture in which we, are, in, in which we find ourselves. We're Americans. We're in the West. We do things on our own accord. We, we are going to live the American dream. Man, you want to get ahead? Put the extra work in. Build your kingdom. Get ahead. I can keep moving forward on my own. And it's the culture in which we live. And so because of that, we tend to shortchange who God is and the promises that he has for us. So oftentimes, instead of looking up to God, we do our best to look inside to ourselves and say, hey, if I can scrap together just a little bit more energy, if I could just get a, squeeze a couple more hours out of the day, if I could just buy that next thing, 
whatever it may be, that we tend to shortchange the promises that God has for us because he has set each and every one of us apart with intention. I know he set us apart from intention because of the fact that he has gifted all of us, supernaturally speaking, our gifts and talents. The Holy Spirit gave those to us, not so we would sit on our hands with them, but so we would use them for the kingdom of God. And beyond that, many Christians, we tend to struggle with, with understanding God's will for our lives. Has anybody ever been there? You're like, man, I just don't know what God's will for my life is. Right? Everybody has a hard time with that. Like if I just be quiet long enough, will God say something like audibly? Or even if I have a hard time staying quiet for a while, I know of a couple of you in here who have that issue. Can God, can you just be real loud? Like, can you just do like thunder and lightning or something? Like, just give me a sign. Just tell me what it is I'm supposed to do. So we wrestle with God's will for our lives because, because of fact, we almost expect this loud, booming voice from heaven, complete with trumpets and a burst of light and all of these angels. And like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to love people. All right, cool. Thanks, God. I appreciate that. Oh, wow. Well, God's like, hey, look, it's, I, I wrote that pretty clearly in scripture. You didn't need my audible voice for that. But God doesn't necessarily work that way. It'd be really simple, really nice if he did work that way for a lot of us. You're like, finally, <laughs> thank you. Often he works in whispers instead of shouts. Oftentimes God works through his word, his written word rather than an audible booming voice. Oftentimes he works through other believers who call out something they see in you that you don't even see in yourself. I was in church. I worked in churches for about six years, seven years. And then after seven years, I decided it was too hard. And when I was 18 years old, I, you know, I, I felt like I felt the Holy Spirit more real in my life than I've ever felt before saying, you need to go into vocational ministry. Like, okay. So being 18 years old and dumb and all those things, I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do it. And so that's what I pursued. And that's what I did. And then it, at some point in my life, I decided that it was too difficult. It was too hard. I'm getting out. And you know what? I can use my talents to teach elsewhere. So I decided to pursue a, a career in teaching very short career as far as career go, careers go. Just about as short of a career as a teacher can have as a matter of fact. Well, not that quite, not, not quite that short. I didn't get fired. But I taught for a year in hopes that the gifts and talents that God gave me, the intention that he had for my life, I could then utilize in the midst of a classroom. Then something happened. About two months in, I decided I didn't care if students could write a persuasive essay or not. I decided that I cared a whole lot more about pointing kids, pointing students to Jesus and being able to use those gifts and talents of teaching and preaching and leadership in order to do that. Now, I'm not shortchanging teachers. I quit because you guys have the most difficult job in the world. I couldn't hack it. But I also recognized that God's will for my life wasn't in the classroom. 
but I didn't recognize that because of an audible voice from God and, a, and trumpets and angels and the whole nine yards. I realized it because I got a couple different phone calls from a couple different people within three weeks of each other. The last one being a friend of mine named Aaron Hoffman. And Aaron called me, he was like, hey, are you still doing that teaching thing? Like, yeah, cool, man. You still doing that worship leader thing? He's like, yeah. He said, hey, I'm applying for a job at a church down south. And he said, they're looking for a guy to start a high school ministry. I think you'd be perfect for it. I told him, I was like, I just signed a contract to teach for another year. He's like, yeah, but you need to have a conversation with these guys. Before you just jump all in, go have a conversation with these guys. So I did. So I had a conversation with these guys. And as I talked with them, as I prayed about it, as Sarah and I prayed about it, about moving four hours away from anyone we, we knew, from any community that we ever had, we consistently heard the still small voice of God just saying, go, go, go. And so we went. And I don't say that because I want to be the hero of the story. I say that because I ran away from God. I ran away from God's intention for my life. That I recognize the gifts and talents that he has given me are best suited for vocational ministry in the midst of the church. Not every single one of you in here is made for vocational ministry. So I'm not, that's not where I'm going with this whole thing this morning, right? Also, we can't hire you all. But if you're looking to serve, please come and talk to us. We can let you work here for free. I know, it's a pretty sweet gig. But it's not about vocational ministry. It's recognizing that God had an intention for my life even before I knew what that intention for my life was. That as I continued to pray and continue to seek who God was, I began to recognize that that's the direction that my life should be going. So regardless of recognizing that God has an intention for my life, the last thing that we need to ask ourselves then is, are you using your gifts and talents to build your kingdom or are you using your gifts and talents to build God's kingdom? And so as I ran away, as I decided I'm going into teaching, and I wasn't a bad teacher, I wasn't a good teacher, but I wasn't a bad teacher or anything like that. I could have used those gifts and talents. I could have said, you know what? I'm gonna stay in the classroom and do my best to care about writing a critical essay or I don't even know what they're called anymore. That's how good of an English teacher I was. Then I ran away and I recognized that, you know what? I can use these gifts and talents to make my life more comfortable because that was the impetus for leaving the church in the first place. Is that Sarah and I were having a heart, we were burnt out on church. We were burnt out on church people. We were burnt out on politics and timing and all of those things that go along with the local church. We were just done. And I thought to myself, okay, what is it then that I could do to pay me about the same amount of money? I could still use my talents and I could get summers off. That wasn't really part of it, but that ended up being part of it. I said, well, I should just go into teaching. But the thing that I ended up building over the course of that year, year and a half, two years, for if you include all the education that it took for me to get there, the thing that I ended up building was my comfort, my kingdom, the things that I wanted to accomplish. 
I wanted to accomplish, like I said, comfort and just the ability for, for me to come home and be able to shut my brain off as soon as all of my students left. So I didn't have to take phone calls and text messages later on in the evening. So I could be, so my kingdom could be a cushy one. And recognize that that simply wasn't true. That simply wasn't the way that I should have been living my life. That God had an intention for me and he had gifted me supernaturally in such a way that my responsibility was to build his kingdom. I'll end with this. And please pay attention because if you don't, you're going to think I'm embezzling for the church. Okay? So please pay attention. <laughs> At the beginning of service, uh, we always pass a plate right? And we take our offering and some of you give online and some of you uh, have bill pay set up, whatever. But you pass a plate and the hope is, is that enough money is given this week, this month for us to continue to do ministry. And what happens is all of that money goes back into a safe that I don't have access to, okay? But let's pretend for a second that I do have access to that safe. And after service, I went back to that safe and I took all the money out and I went back to my office and I spread the money out and I was just like, oh, $100 bill. Yep, grab that and put it in my pocket. It's perfect, man. I need new glasses real bad. And there's a 20 sitting there and I grabbed that. I'm like, hey, I could take Sarah to Superior Dairy later. Let's go. We're going to get the big ice cream. <laughs> and there's a 50 sitting there and I don't know who uses $50 bills anymore, but there's a 50 sitting there and take that 50 and think to myself, man, Cooper, he needs a new backpack. So I put that in my pocket. And even as I'm saying this, I'm feeling angst. And I'm sure even as I'm saying this, hopefully all of you feel angst, especially those people in here who, are, who give to the offering on a regular basis. And you're feeling angst because those things were given for a purpose and the purpose was not mine. The purpose was not for me. It was not for my glasses. It was not for my son's backpack. It was not for Superior Dairy. Those gifts were given to help the church function, to make God look good and Christ well known. That was the intention of those gifts and you stole them, Peter. And we get angsty about it. But what if I told you that's the exact same things that we do when we decide to take our own gifts and talents and apply them to our kingdom instead of God's. That we say, those gifts and talents that were given to me, I'm going to make my life really comfortable. Those gifts and talents that were given to me, man, I'm going to do my best to live lavishly while I'm here. Those gifts and talents that were given to me, man, I'm going to do my best to build my business. I'm going to do my best to build my family. I'm going to do my best to whatever. You fill in the blank with whatever it is that you're going to do your best to do. But in the same way that you got angsty, as I talked about reaching my hand into that offering plate, we should be getting angsty as a church, recognizing that we're taking the gifts and talents that God has given to build his kingdom and applying them to ourselves. John the Baptist was very clear that this is not about him. He was set apart with intention. He uses his gifts, he used his talents to be able to widen and deepen the kingdom of God. 
We recognize later that John, while he continued to point people to Jesus, his ministry wasn't over at the end of this. He continues to have ministry until eventually he's killed for it. John continued forward. He continued to use his gifts and he continued to use his offerings because he recognized that God has a plan for his life, that it was God's will for him to further and deepen the kingdom of God. That was the intention. And it is the same intention for each and every one of us. That God's intention for our lives is to both further and deepen the kingdom of God. And so if you aren't using the gifts and talents that God has given you to do so, you're stealing. We are stealing. And I don't do it all the time. I'm not standing up here saying, hey, man, I'm perfect. Preacher man uses his gifts of speaking and teaching almost every weekend. Man, of course he's doing it. No, I have other gifts and abilities that I shy away from simply because I'm uncomfortable in the same way that you do as well. That's part of stepping up to the plate, stepping out in faith. And church, imagine if, if, if rather than using our gifts and talents to build our own kingdom, we were like John the Baptist and committed everything God gave him to point people straight to Jesus. The kingdom of God would expand. The kingdom of God would deepen and be more rich than it has ever been before. Those who are in need, and they would have, they would have people ready to take care of them because their intention in life is to be hospitable. Or if people who are struggling with anxiety and people struggling with depression would have the church rallying beside them, reminding them of God's promises, saying, look, I recognize that you're sick. Look at what God promises. Or if those who didn't know Jesus had people just come alongside of them and explain who Jesus is, explain what it is that God did for them, what it is God did on their behalf in a way that they could understand. Or if people who kept falling back into debt in some way, had the body of Christ alongside of them with people who have the gift of administration saying, hey, look, let's move forward. Let's get through this so you can live a life that is above reproach and a life that you are honoring God with your finances. Church, if we used our gifts and our abilities to be able to further and deepen and widen the kingdom of God, this place would be a place that would be completely and radically, radically transformed. Kings County would look completely and totally different than it does now because we as Christians would stop using the gifts and talents that we have for our kingdoms and start pointing, pointing them straight to Jesus in the same way that John did. Behold the Lamb of God over and over and over again. Church, we're meant for potency we have more talent in this room. We have more talent within the church than they do outside the church. Why? Because God gave it to us. Didn't give it to us for us, gave it to us for him. So how is it that we're using those gifts and talents to expand his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, God, thank you for John the Baptist Thank you for his life. Thank you just for him being willing and saying, God, I know you have an intention for my life. I'm going to take this vow. I'm going to move forward with it. I'm going to point people directly towards you. It's not about my kingdom. It's about you, God. 
that he cut himself off from, off from comforts of the world so he could better proclaim your name? And God, I just, I pray for our church. I pray for the capital C church that we would recognize that this isn't about us. It's not about our baby kingdoms. That we would stop trying to hoard space over in the corner and say, no, I got this over here. I got this over here. That it wouldn't be about that, Father. That it would be about us being open-handed with the gifts that your spirit gave to us when we decided to follow you. Those supernatural gifts. And that with those gifts, we would point people straight back to you. Straight back to the Lamb of God. Father, I pray that you would make the people in this room dangerous. That we would utilize those gifts in such a way that hell would be on red alert. God, that we would stop taking the things that you gave us for you and we would start giving them back. And Father, if there's those who are in here who don't yet know you, who are saying, man, this whole thing about giving back and loving you well and loving people well and using the gifts that you've given me to further and deepen the kingdom. God, man, I want to be a part of that. If that's you in here with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, we pray the ABC is the conclusion of every service. And A, you, just, you can just pray along with me. A, Father, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I messed up, and the Bible tells me that, and I recognize that. I mess up every single day. I'm using my gifts and talents for my baby kingdom, not for your kingdom, God. So I admit that, that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Father, I'm thankful that, B, I believe that you sent your son to die on the cross on my behalf because I recognize you had an intention for me. Even before I was born, even before I was thought of, you had an intention for my life. And I believe that that intention starts with your son reconciling me to you. So I believe he went and died on my behalf and see, Father, I'm gonna choose to follow him every single day of my life. I'm gonna choose to use the gifts that you've given me. I'm gonna choose to use the intention that you have with my life to make your name known, to make your son's name known every single day. Father, I'm thankful for this body of believers. God, I pray that as we leave this place, as we go from this place, that our gifts and our talents would be used according to your word, not according to our preferences. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the FBH podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this week's sermon. Music was by the band Broke for Free. And if you would like more information about our church, feel free to check out fbhanford.org. That's fbhanford.org. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week.